Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is September the 15th, 2015, 9-15-15. I like repetitive numbers because I'm just weird that way. Anyway, uh, we're going to have a great show today. 1644 is the episode. We're continuing the Insurgency series, this series of podcasts that challenge you to be your own solution and to not think that your, your solution is in the system or working in the system, but to create your own systems, your own way, independently for yourself. Today's show is actually titled... A little bit differently than anything I've ever done before. A painful economic and social evolution and what to do during it. Uh, we hear a lot about economic collapse in, in the, in the prepper space. I actually think economic evolution, socio, social evolution, socioeconomic evolution is more what's going on. A system that has a terminal disease. A system that's dying and thereby needing replacement. We'll get deeper into that today, but today's show was initially going to be about the specter of systemic collapse, trying to go old school for you. But the more I think about it, I guess I can't go old school knowing what I know new school in some ways. So there'll be plenty of the stuff that made you love TSP all the way back in 2008 when you started listening, if you're that long a listener today. But we'll also look at new ways to see the solution. And really the message of TSP has never changed. You are your own answer. What you do matters has been a, a tenant of modern survival philosophy since the first month of the show. But we're just going to talk about how understanding that has changed a bit today for me over the last eight years. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold, I go to jmbullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same silver eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. 
Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth roughly in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. And sponsor of the day number two today is the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel. And uh, right now, he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find: pasta sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame roasted red pepper sun-dried tomato and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out HarvestEating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. Next up, can we take a look at the year that was the episode? Uh, the year 1644, I have three for you today from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com, the Survival, Self-Sufficiency, and Historical Perspective Wiki, where you can actually be a contributor. I don't know how, Jack. I don't know how to write an article on a wiki. Guess what? We have videos to show you how to do it. It's really, really simple. And basically, you write everything up in like Word or something and then drop it in and format it a little bit, and other people will get in there and help make it better, just like Wikipedia, except... It's not run by a bunch of Nazis, because that's kind of how I feel about Wikipedia. The Wikipedia Nazis are in force over there. This is our community's wiki to help share information. Please be a contributor and a reader. It is an encyclopedia of prepper, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and liberty knowledge. Again, at tspwiki.com. The three I have for you today from Alex Shrugged in the historical segment are The Manchu Army Takes Beijing. We have The Jews of Mulgrave Are Murdered for a Metaphor. And we have its mass murder in China, uh, Portugal, no, China. I'm going to read that one because it kind of fits with today's episode in a way that will become clear about halfway through the episode, I would bet. Portugal was absorbed into Spain something like 60 years ago, but it remained a separate power. Then Portugal broke away from Spain in 1640 in a violent way, and it continues to fight for its independence. Thus, it is no longer safe to be a Spaniard in Portugal especially if you're a strong supporter to rejoin Spain and Portugal. However, one would think one would be reasonably safe in China. Not so. One such fellow, a Spanish soldier, seeks refuge in St. Dominic's church after a mob attacks him. Unfortunately, the church membership in China has sided with the Portuguese. During the Mass, he is murdered at the altar. Nationalism often trumps religion, even when you are in a different nation entirely. As always, Alex has his take on this, and then I'll give you mine. Alex says, 
I made this point when the Thirty Years' War changed from a religious war into a war for national interests. It essentially came down to the soldiers of the same religion fighting each other. Nationality mattered more than religion. If you think that imposing a religion on government will somehow bring government to heal, think again. I've not seen that work in practice. It is an ideal not yet proven to work in the current environment and often proven to fail except for small homogenous communities and often not even then. I'm looking at you, pilgrims. You forced people to create Providence, Rhode Island because you couldn't make a religious state work in Massachusetts. A good example. Here's my take on this. If nationality trumps faith, then statism is a religion. Say it again and just, if nationality trumps faith, then statism is a religion. If, if religion trumps nationalism, then two nations of the same common core religious belief should never be at war with each other. Because the faith should be higher than the nationalism. And faith is an amazing thing for people that have it. I mean, it will drive people to do horrible things or do wonderful things. It will make some people stand in front of death itself and never flinch when death comes because they stand tall in their faith, even when attacked and persecuted for it. So if nationalism can make a person choose to harm a person of the same faith, when that person's actually done nothing to them, then the statism is actually ingrained in us and programmed in us to be a higher level of faith, a faith in our nation above our faith in whatever religion we purport to follow. Just keep that in mind later when you hear a word. When you hear the word morality come up in today's show, it's time to think back to this history segment. And I won't be doing it for you today because today's show is all about thinking for yourself. Before we dig deep into that, remember that I screwed up the plan of the week. Um, so this week I have for you two plants of the week. And today I have the Warren Pear Tree from Bob Wells Nursery. The Warren Pear is a tree that is highly adaptable from zones 5 to 9. That's most of the United States, guys. Excellent quality pear. Best of all, the tree is highly resistant to fire blight. I can't tell you how important that is. So many wonderful pear trees get in their fourth or fifth year and just get ate up with fire blight. So a resistant tree is a good way to go. It produces a medium to long neck fruit with pale green skin. Sometimes it's a little blush red, smooth flesh with no grit cells. So if you've ever had a pear that has that gritty, sandy thing to it, they don't have that. It's juicy and buttery with superb flavor. Cold hardy, down to 20 degrees below zero Fahrenheit and ripens early in August. So it's a good time to be getting some fruits. A lot of times, early August is when you're kind of all your early stuff's in, your late stuff's not there yet, and you don't have much. Uh, it's a good keeper, requires only 600 chill hours. And for you guys with small properties, it is self-fruitful, meaning you don't need a pollinator. You can find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Bob specializes in edible landscaping, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Next up, hey, consider joining the Members Brigade. Why? Because this show's awesome, or you wouldn't listen to it. You're an awesome person, and you wouldn't spend your time listening to a show if it sucked. That means it's probably worth 20 cents an episode, and you can help support the show at that rate or less if you are a first responder or a law enforcement officer or Peace Corps volunteer or a military member, prior service or active duty. All you guys get a discount. Just email me at TSPC, or I'm sorry, just email me at the jack at the survival podcast.com. TSPC service discount on the subject line. Tell me about your service. Everyone else, while you pay full price, it's still a great deal. It's actually 18.3 cents. 
18.3 cents an episode is what the Members Brigade comes out to. And guess what? Over 60 companies provide discounts. 60 companies provide discounts on things you're probably already buying, from the practical to the tactical to just the cool and interesting. And I'm working to add more right now. I'm working on one right now that the discount from them will pay for your membership for a year and, and give you the opportunity to do something really cool that I can't tell you about yet. But, hey, it's coming. And remember, tomorrow... Tomorrow I'm doing a lifetime membership sale. I'm going to limit that to 15 people. The post that will allow you to purchase it will go live at 9 a.m. Central Time tomorrow. But if you want to join for a year, this is a great time to do that and help support the show and get all those great discounts. Just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. Um, now, getting into the main topic of today's show, I... I at times, I think I hear people say, "I remember the car days and when you were railing against the system all the time and and coming up with practical solutions at the same time." And I miss some of that energy, you know, when you were yelling at ass clowns and weaving in and out of traffic for that first two years. Those were like the golden days of TSP. And part of me, a lot of times, wants to bring back that, but I think that there's what, what actually a lot of people mean when they say that, though it goes unsaid, is, "Well, you were a libertarian then." You believed in working with the system that we had, and now you don't. You've gone over the edge. You've gone nuts, and you've become dun, 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 an anarchist. You are an extremist now. Well, before I even begin today, if you think that view is extreme, I would just like you to indulge me for the next 60 seconds and consider this possibility. It is a more extreme view to believe that it is okay to take other people's property under perceived legitimacy due to a badge, a uniform, a title, or an office, and take their property from them against their will, using the force of violence, or the threat of violence at the point of a gun to do so, and give their property to somebody else, in any amount whatsoever, whether it's 1%, 10%, 50%, it doesn't matter, to, to, to take away someone else's property against their will with the threat of violence is an extreme view. To believe that we shouldn't do that is actually quite a moderate, peaceful view. Just think about that as we go forward. So, again, today's show kind of started with me wanting to talk to you guys about what I see as a collapse of many of the systems that, that's coming, that's actually not coming, it's happening right now. It's, it's, it's ongoing around us. Again, we're in the, the, we're in the event horizon of a black hole sucking all of these systems to death. And like you would be if you're in that event horizon, that black hole, you don't really see it unless you know what to look for. Everything sort of seems normal, and it might even seem like things are getting better at times, but they're really not. Now, when I started prepping really heavily again, when I came back to my roots, that was about 2001, the biggest driver for me was two things. One was understanding the value of my family that I was beginning to lose. And I don't think we were in danger of divorce or anything, but I was losing the close relationship with my wife and my son because I'd been traveling for years in sales. And I'd taken a new job. We had relocated. We were far from her family, so she didn't have that support. And I was traveling more than ever. And I was working my way up the corporate ladder. 9-11 hit, and it drove home the fact that I could be gone at any time and that my family was valuable, and that my contribution to them was important, and that I needed to be with them. And at the same time, I began to uncover the reality of how fragile our economy was. I was actually doing a lot of sales into government and military and financial space, selling computer test equipment, because those were good markets to be in during a recession. All those people still had money. And I started to understand more and more 
about the fabric of our financial systems and, and how fictitious it all was. And I started doing research and learning more about what was, gonna, what was going to happen mathematically. So one of my biggest macro concerns when I started prepping, so, so micro concerns are all the things that can happen to you. This is the, the, the threat probability index we talk about. You should first prep for losing a job, uh, the death or illness of a loved one, a storm that affects your house, a fire, a regional disaster that requires, you know. But then there's also these big macro concerns that you have to be prepared for. It's just that getting prepared for the big disasters is, is a destination that all these little disaster preparations are on the way to. So you do the same things to prepare to deal without systems of support, to deal without income, to deal without a place to live, to deal with damage to the place that you live, etc. So you start out, so you have to have this balance between the, the, the things that are most likely that are just you, but then there's this reality of the macro. And the macro concern for me was that the economic system we were in at some point had to fail. And it was a mathematical certainty that this would happen. It was not an opinion. There's no way the current economic system could continue indefinitely. It might continue for 20 years. It might even make it 30 or 40. But at some point, it's going to implode or evolve. And numbers alone tell us this. As I learned about unfunded liability, like it was always like most Americans, the debt, the debt, the debt. Look at it go. Oh, my God, how big can this thing get before it falls on its ass? But then I learned about unfunded liabilities, which is where the debt's headed. And when I started to comprehend you know, numbers like 150 trillion dollars, which is money we will need in the future that we know we will never have. That's what an unfunded liability is, and that's, that's the number. I, I was like, oh my God, it, it's going to, it's going to fall apart. We're going to have an economic apocalypse. And that's how I used to feel. And now I feel that the truth is the system isn't surviving for now, right? They, like, what I was saying before is you, you would think that, well, this thing has to die, but it could survive for another 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and then boom, it'll die, right? Like it's, like it's a healthy thing right now, but it's, it's living a, 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 an unhealthy lifestyle, like a person that doesn't have cancer yet, but they're smoking, they're drinking, they're eating toxic foods, they're not taking care of themselves or their body, they're living a lifestyle that is predisposed to get cancer. And if not cancer, then it's going to be heart disease. And if not heart disease, it's going to be diabetes. It'll lead to heart disease. But you get the point. Like you're looking at a person in their 20s that might make it to 40, that might make it to 50, that might make it to 60, but they ain't going to live to be 90. And somewhere along the line, you're going to have a big crash. And what I've realized is when I look at the, the socioeconomic systems in place in the first world today, what I'm actually looking at is a patient that already has cancer. A, a, a slow, debilitating form of cancer, but it's in play right now. And, and it's not just the reckless behavior, but the disease is already metastasizing. But this is a, a if we look at this economy and, and do a metaphor and call it a species onto itself, like it's a human, it's a monkey, it's a dog, it's an economy. This economy is something that is a, a bicentennial in, in a normal run. Right? So if everything was done right, it could last 200 years or more. And if you think that's like, well, that's pretty short-sighted, tell me an economy that's lasted more than about two or 300 years. 
And, and, and they really haven't. You can show me empires, like, well, the Roman Empire lasted until fiat currency or whatever. But there were actually multiple economic evolutions during the, the, the Roman empires, the Greek empires, the, 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 the Chinese dynasties, etc. There were always changes to, to the under, underlying fundamental economic systems. Economic systems are not designed to work forever. They're designed to evolve. But what we did is we took an economic system and tried to make it last forever. We tried to make it immortal. And then we tricked ourselves into believing that we had actually made the Frankenstein monster immortal, that it could always be resuscitated, and we started to live an abusive lifestyle with it and hasten its death. And, and that's where I think we are. It, it's a dying system versus a system collapse. So most people did die of cancer or, or what have you. They don't walk into a room one day say, I don't feel real well, clutch their throat, fall over and die of, of uh, small cell carcinoma or advanced stage lung cancer or whatever. They don't die like they're having a heart attack. They, their, their health begins to decline. And a lot of times the people around them that see an incremental decline in their health don't even notice it. There's a lot of cancers that I believe we could catch earlier. Not with advanced screening and radiology or something. I think if a person was visited once every six months by a person that knew them, if that person was beginning to go into decline, that six-month period, you would look at that person and say, something's not right. Now you say a doctor does it. Doctors don't look at people that way. They look at people as a sheet of paper, a clipboard, a test. They don't actually, they have way too many patients to know them individually like that. I'm talking like a friend or relative. If you have a friend or relative that sees you every six months, it's often the case that they'll say something's, if they have the courage to do it, something's not right. And if you, if you start looking into it, you might find that something's wrong. But just like we don't notice our kids growing because we're there every day, just like we don't notice how fast our garden grows because we, we're out there every day going, it's, it's so small still, it's so small. But if we look at a picture from 30 days apart of our garden, we go, holy crap, look how much growth there is already. This is how our economy is. We're so close to it. Did all we look at are these big warning signs out at the peripheral edges, and we don't see all the little places where it's just dying and evolving and changing, and it has to evolve and it has to change. I say that's what's really going on right now. It is not just a systemic collapse. It's an evolution of society and economics, and a new paradigm is going to come forward and replace everything that we know. This is not just like automation taking jobs. This is a fundamental change to how we see economics, to how money is created, how money is exchanged, and what it's exactly going to look like, I don't know. I'm not Nostradamus. I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't claim to. But it's a system that's run now. The, the current version you know, of our economic system in the world is a little over 100 years old. And, and you could almost make the case that it's close to 200 years old, because central banks even when they went away, never really went away. And they go back to about the founding of the, of the country. And, and, and they, they, have, they have gotten their heels into everything ever since. There's a European Central Bank and etc. Um, and the system of fractional reserve banking in its modern form is about 100 years old. The system of monetary creation under the current Federal Reserve is just over 100 years old, having been established in 1913. When a system's been around that long, 
And yet, society has evolved from... When when we started this system, man couldn't even get off the ground with anything other than maybe a balloon or a glider. To the Wright brothers making the first practical uh, engine-driven aircraft. To uh, people being able to get on 747s and 777s and travel all around the world in a matter of hours. And a system sophisticated enough for, for, for tens of thousands of those aircraft to be in the air at the same time. And arrive safely at their destinations 99.9999999999% of the time, uh, to a point where we've actually taken and put men on a, a ball of rock we call Earth's moon, to the point where we've actually caused a, a device to leave our solar system in, in the quest to, to other places. All of that's happened, and yet we're still using the same monetary system. We're still largely using the same education system. Most of our systems have not kept up with these advancements. When, when, when technology and knowledge evolve at the speed that they're evolving at right now, the fundamental underlying systems have got to evolve to keep pace. There is also the fact that human beings are, are more and more beginning to see reality. They're seeing an equity, right? And it's being manifested in a lot of, of kookiness and craziness. Yeah, it's calls for social justice. Well, you can't have justice by stealing from one group and giving to another. That's not justice. That's not justice. It's, it's the mythology of Robin Hood that's not even accurate. The, the mythology of Robin Hood is that Robin Hood robbed the rich and gave to the poor. That's not what Robin Hood did. Robin Hood did not rob wealthy people of the money they earned, let's say, from running their, 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 their farms or their what have you, right? Or their lands. They didn't rob the wealth, he didn't rob the wealthy of the people who ran uh, their, their businesses as noblemen and paid people to do work and then made a profit. That's not what he took. What he took was the taxes paid by the people back. So the, the noblemen were the tax collectors. They would collect the taxes and send the taxes off. And, of course, Robin Hood's a mythological story. But the story, in fact, is that the money that was stolen was money that was first taken from the people as taxes and returned to the people who paid it in the first place. This is not modern Robin Hood theory. This is true Robin Hood theory. That if something is taken from someone, and then you go take it back and return it to the original property owner, this is justice. But to take property from anyone, no matter who they are, against their will, and, and give it to somebody else, that's injustice. Thou shall not steal. It's, it's that simple. And, and people are beginning to understand that things are being stolen from them, and they want them returned. But instead of saying, let's prevent the theft, they're saying, let's take other people's stuff. Let's use the apparatus of the state and the government to redistribute the stuff back to us and make the government Robin Hood. When, ro when the government is the robber. The government is the people that Robin Hood was taking the money from in the first place. Robin Hood wasn't saying, let's, let's get people elected that'll give you your money back. He said, let's go take the money back on of ourselves. Let's go change the system. There's something else that's not said about Robin Hood. What Robin Hood really is the story of. The stories of Robin Hood are really the tales of socioeconomic evolution. I, I, I think you could probably do 
an entire college-level course on Robin Hood with that theory behind it, but I can, as most times is the case with complex college courses, make it much more simple and, and, and break it down in about two minutes for you. Writers of movies will often stumble upon truths into a script without even realizing that is what they have done. It just Because it's a truth, it ends up falling out of, the, of an actor's mouth at some point in the movie. One of the better modern adaptations of the story of Robin Hood to me is the one with Kevin Costner in it. The one that came out, I guess, 10, 15 years ago. It might have been called Prince of Thieves, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I'm not sure. But in that movie, the sheriff of Nottingham makes this line that almost no one ever talks about. I've never heard anybody talk about it. But it's about the feudal order. And it's something I looked for so I could play a soundbite for you, but I can't find it because it, it wasn't a line that was ever important enough that anybody made a YouTube clip out of it. And it is something, uh, a paraphrase would be, I will not have the entire feudal order turned upside down or destroyed or something like that when, when speaking of Robin Hood. In other words, Robin Hood was questioning the order itself, the, the, the way by which society was controlled and saying we, we need to evolve. And when you talk about evolving to, toward a, a, a stateless society, or even for many people, a, a true minarchist society, they can't see it because all they know is what we have. But what they don't see is that's what humanity's been evolving toward the entire time. Less and less power for government, less and less ability for government and state to control people, and, and more and more freedom. But somewhere along the line, we went off the rails in this latest evolution, and the people in power actually figured out how to create the illusion of greater freedom with creating some of the, the biggest tyrannies of all time, where the government is actually controlled by the corporations. We call that fascism, folks. And instead of firing squads, we just you know make people disappear. Uh, into a prison system that they never come out of. Or if somebody is too disruptive, we just destroy their life. You know, they, they say something we don't like and they've come to a level of public prominence and then a slander campaign just destroys them. Or somebody even as simple as an innocuous person that's just a, a programmer makes a statement to somebody that ends up on camera, uh, or was a CFO of a company, for instance, with the, the Chick-fil-A issue and all of a sudden they lose their job and they're destroyed because they, they dared to differ with the, the will of the public that is actually the will of the state and the will of those controlling the public. So at this point, we're now at a point where we have people saying we will not have the order that we're under turned up on its head or destroyed. But it's it doesn't work that way. It is inevitable. The system has to evolve. And, and let me explain to you the reasons I feel there's no solution in the current system. First and foremost is the system caused the problems. So if we look at just about every major problem with society today that's in any way connected to government, it's government that created that problem in the first place. So you can't use a, a, a system that caused a problem to solve a problem. It doesn't work that way. The next reason is the system itself largely is the problem. The systems are the problems. The economic system is the reason for economic inequity. It is because it defies the ability of individuals to freely choose to associate with each other and thereby freely choose to engage in commerce in any manner of their choosing. So that's just the economic system. But the medical system is largely the problem in modern medicine. So if the system itself is the problem, then it, it cannot also not be the solution. 
The next is the systems are outdated. Most of our systems today are running on 100 to 200 years of longevity in their basic core format. If you look at a picture of a school in 1900, all the desks in row, children sitting there reading books, listening to a teacher, what have you, and you look at a picture today, the kids might have iPads now in some schools or laptops or what have you, but in the end, the, the, the system is exactly the same. And the core framework of what children are taught is the same. And the means by which we judge their success or failure is the same. And the type of society they're being prepared to enter as adults is the same. But the society itself is different. So we're giving them the same preparation. Well, they're learning new skills, Jack. and they're le- But they're not. They're actually learning less in many ways about fundamental reality. But in the end, the the programming, it doesn't matter what the program code is, but the programming itself is designing students to become workers in a system that's being destroyed and dying. And if we just keep going, you'll find more and more the same. The medical system is largely run the same way. Yes, we have new drugs. Yes, we have new technologies, and those are all great evolutions, but the fundamental reality is you get sick, you go to the doctor, he tells you what's wrong with you, you take a treatment in the form of a drug or a surgery, that's the best you can do, and we treat the condition rather than actually attempt to cure the disease. And we put almost nothing into prevention other than vaccinations, which in themselves probably cause at least some health risks and are certainly done beyond what's necessary to make vaccinations effective. The, the, the course of vaccinations given to our children today makes no sense if one examines simply the course of vaccinations given to our children in 1980 and how successful by their own metrics and their own, and their own measurements that 1980's course of vaccinations was. There was no need to increase the rate and numbers other than to sell more vaccinations to make more money for a system that is designed to profit from scarcity and fear. And and we just could keep going, but I don't want to, okay? But the systems themselves are outdated. They're based on an archaic philosophy that no longer fits with modern reality. The next thing is the systems in of themselves are unjust and immoral whether we look at the, the so-called capitalistic component of them or the status socialist component of them. A system that takes away property from one person and gives it to another against their will is immoral. And a system that allows one party to use the power of the state to actually accumulate capital at the expense of others is also immoral. It's theft in both directions. But it's the same people committing the theft. They just give themselves different titles so that you won't realize they're all on the same team. They talk about, they talk about competition and good competition is good. If I wanted to get the best design for a small house I possibly could, I would put together 20 teams that are all capable of building a great one and I would tell them all to compete with each other. However, however, in the interest of actually getting the best design, I would then have them all collaborate with each other. That's what they do. That's what the people in charge of this country do. They do compete with each other, but in the end they collaborate to their own ends while convincing you that they're in constant competition, while turning you against your, your, your fellow man so that you're in constant competition, so that you don't talk to each other, so that you never reach the point of collaboration. 
So we have an immoral and unjust system, and we have a, a population largely waking up to that fact. Again, many of the solutions the public comes up with, or the various factions and groups come up with, that still want to work in this broken system are, are completely kooky. The things that, that are touted as social justice are just as inequitable and just as unfair and just as immoral as the current immorality and injustice. Okay? But that's because people can't see that we need to get outside of where we are and have something totally new and different. That this is an evolution. They're trying to fix a broken system. In many ways, what people are trying to do right now is we have a 1950s television with those big tubes that look like long light bulbs in them. It's black and white, and you, you, you hit it when it doesn't work, and all of a sudden the picture comes in, and, and we're working on that. But the signal isn't even analog anymore. That TV doesn't even work without a conversion box anymore. It should be thrown away. It should be recycled. It, 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 you just get rid of it. And no one does this unless they, they want an antique that actually works, right? It, it, what you do is you say, hey, it's time for a big old flat screen TV. This looks better, it works better, it functions better, so I'm going to evolve from the standpoint of screen-based entertainment. But yet, in our day-to-day -day activities within the system that governs all these things, and the economics that control all these things, we want to stay rooted in an archaic, outdated system. That can't work. The systems are not the best we can do. You often hear that objection when you speak this way to people, especially Americans, because we've been led to believe we are the greatest country in the world, that Americans in of ourselves are exceptional. Our form of government is exceptional. Our people are exceptional. Our land is exceptional. Everything about us is just better, a little bit better than everybody else in the rest of the world. That's bullshit, but it's also a great way to control people. It's much easier for me to get you to believe that you're awesome than to get you to believe that you're suck. So if I can target my message that you're awesome to you in such a way that it benefits me from your actions, I can completely control you. And when anybody tells you I'm lying, you will attack them, not me. You'll never listen to them because, hey, I keep telling you you're awesome. Now, the problem is, to divide a nation, you can't tell everybody they're awesome for the same reasons. So you create two factions, and you tell both sides that they're awesome, and the other side sucks. And you compare one side's minions to Hitler, and one side's minions to someone like Chairman Mao. And then anytime either side says anything that starts to make sense, they just get associated with the evil villain behind them in the back of the scenes, in the back of the mind, and the psychology, and no forward momentum can happen, and the system stays in control, and damn it, I will not have the feudal order destroyed during my reign of control. That's the powers that be. Right? The system though, is killing itself. That's the other reason the system can't work. It's literally at a point now where it's beginning to kill itself. Let's talk about how this is happening. Brazil just came out with an announcement. No more debt. We can't do this anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to fix things. We're going to cut spending and raise taxes. Well, you're in a system where when a country actually comes to the, 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 the has the come to Jesus meeting with itself, that's all that it can do. It's the only two choices it has. It can, it, can, it can either cut spending and raise taxes or lower taxes and increase spending. Or you know, put those four together any way that you want. But in the end, all of them create the same thing. They speed up the death of the nation. You have to think about it like this. Imagine that you're on an airplane. And that airplane is flying from Los Angeles to Hawaii. But somebody made a mistake and didn't put enough fuel in the plane. Okay? 
And the plane has enough fuel to basically get almost to Hawaii. But once you cross the halfway point and go a little bit further, let's say 60% of the way, you're now at a point where the plane can't make it to Hawaii and it can't make it back to Los Angeles. There is no way the plane is going to be able to go in either direction. The world economy is in that state right now. And what everybody on the plane starts screaming is speed up. We'll get there, we'll get there faster. Well, all that does is increase the rate of consumption of the fuel. This is how cutting taxes and cutting spending or increasing spending or uh, increasing taxation does the same thing. It speeds up the burn. Either way. See, when a government spends money, this is what the Keynesian will tell you. This is what the, the liberal socialist will tell you. When a government spends money, it stimulates the economy. Folks, they're not wrong. It does for a time. Okay, When I issue uh, $1,000 in benefits to anybody, whether it's Social Security, whether it's uh, EBT cards, uh, food stamps, whether it's direct welfare, whether it's indirect welfare, no matter what it is. So indirect welfare is called corporate welfare. So no matter what, if I dole out money from the government coffer into the economy and you get it and, and you get $1,000 this month, eh, whatever, and you go out and I don't care if you spend it on dope. Right? I don't care what you spend it on. It goes into the economy. And it begins to move and multiply through the economy, creating economic abundance. Now, this doesn't mean productivity goes up. This doesn't mean innovation goes up. This just means the amount of money available goes up, and more money goes to more people. And when you spend that $1,000, let's say you spend it all at a store. We'll just call it XYZ store. The store gets that money, and it pays its employees with the exact same money. Thereby, the $1,000 has now done the work of $2,000. They spend it again, and it's now done the work of $3,000. And it begins to create an artificial illusion of more money than actually exists. And then it gets into a bank sooner or later. When it gets into the bank, the bank then uses it as a reserve. And if the bank's holding $1,000, you have been taught to believe the bank can loan out $900 and keep $1,000 in reserve. Or I mean, a hundred of the thousand in reserve. It works actually completely opposite. If the bank has a thousand dollars, it can loan nine thousand dollars against the thousand. How does that work? They create the money when they write the check. So when you go to borrow money from a bank, let's say you want nine thousand dollars, your signature, your guarantee of repayment plus interest creates the nine thousand dollars. All they have to do is hold a thousand dollars in reserve. So the thousand becomes nine thousand. Well, the nine thousand goes into the economy. This all keeps going, and it perpetrates what we believe is economic stability and economic success. Money's flowing, business is happening, people are doing things, what have you. Well, it reaches a point where the debt begins to exceed the ability and capacity of repayment. So then the government says, well, what we'll do is we'll cut spending, and we'll raise taxes. So you cut spending and you start pinching off that entry point of the capital into the, into the economy. So the economy begins to collapse at the very time that you're trying to increase tax revenue by charging people more money, but people are making less money and have less money, so when you tax income, you're getting less money. Now, most Republicans are nodding their heads right now and really, really happy about this because I've just educated the liberal socialists as to why all of their plans can't possibly work. We can't just keep taxing people more. But do you notice what the other thing is? The liberal socialist always wants to spend more money and raise taxes. 
Well, I just said you can't cut tax or, or raise taxes and cut spending. What happens if you increase spending and increase taxes? Well, for a time, you actually get more apparent prosperity. Because there's more money going into the economy, even though the government's skimming more back out of the top. But sooner or later, this machine starts to break down as well. We now run into the same problem that started this decision to, to, cut, to cut spending and raise taxes, and that we can no longer service the debt load. Or we're servicing the debt load through what's called monetization of debt. Otherwise, we're just printing money now to cover the, the, the loss. And we get inflation that runs away. So that doesn't work either. And we can keep going through, but I, I don't want to make this whole show about this one piece, right? Because I want to start talking about solutions here. But <laughs> what you start to understand is all four options, no matter how they're combined, only accelerate the demise of a system that already is dying. Because no matter what could have been done to make it work, you've already crossed the 60% mark of the travel of the airplane from Los Angeles to Hawaii. There is now nothing you're going to do to make that plane reach either Hawaii or turn around and go back. You can fly the plane up and down. You can fly it in circles. You can fly it really, really slow, almost close to stall speed, and extend the range by fuel consumption as much as possible. But as you cut back on the velocity, you actually start to reduce the mileage possible. And if you speed up, eventually you start to use more fuel. There's always a point, a sweet spot, where the plane can make maximum range. And if that's not good enough, anything else just makes it worse. That's the global socioeconomic system of today. If we stay in the plane, the only solution to that problem would be to effectively turn the plane into a boat. And in other words, figure out how can we make sure that when we put this plane down in the water, it's as gentle as possible, and it floats, and the, and the fuselage doesn't flood, and we can use the tools on the plane that are designed for this exact problem, and which course of action will get us closest to help. So we're going to radio for help, we're going to call for help, we're going to get as close to a land mass or a shipping lane as possible so that we can get these people off the plane. Okay, This is where the metaphor breaks down. The plane has hours to make this decision and one choice. We've had decades, century, to make this decision. But through inaction, we've not made a choice. We've not crossed a 60% point. But we have a lot more time and a lot more options than just changing the, the, the plane into a boat. But the metaphor comes back around. That's what we have to do. We have to create new systems for ourselves, prove that they work so that others will engage and adopt them. And the last reason that there's no solution in the current system is, is you cannot stop evolution. Remember Jurassic Park? Nature will find a way. We made all females, and yet somehow there's, there's some males out there. Those dinosaurs are breeding, damn it. Well, human, humanity has evolved not just physically, but what I would call truly spiritually over time. Humanity has more and more started to look out at its fellow man and say, I care about that person on the other side of the street. I care about that person down the road. I care about that person in the Horn of Africa that's starving. And I can't fix it all, and I won't pretend that I can, but I want to do as much as I can. We have a system that's predatory and a humanity that's evolving to be compassionate. They're incompatible with each other. Now, does that mean that we're all going to be in a hunky-dunky utopia in 50 years? No. Evolution's nasty. Evolution's painful. 
And the speed is subject to the environment. So I don't know how long it's going to go. My belief is the solution is what I call practical anarchism. And anarchism is a word that scares people because they think it's radical. Uh, they think that it's, it's dangerous. They think that it's a bunch of people burning down buildings. Uh, they think that it's a bunch of teenagers living in their mom's basement, dressing in back and black and listening to punk music and, and rocking out smoking dope and claiming to hate capitalism all while using, you know, iPhones and iPads and everything else. And those things are not anarchism. Anarchism is first and foremost, and now's the time to think back to the uh, history segment, even though I said I wasn't going to say that, and it's too late, I already did now, so I messed up. So you got a little cue in there. But anarchism is first and foremost based on morality. And I'd ask you to consider that deeply. One cannot be immoral and a true anarchist at the same time. To be an anarchist requires you to accept personal responsibility to not steal from others, to not take what doesn't belong to you. You can't be an anarchist and steal from others. Because that's not anarchism. Because anarchism is fundamentally based on the belief that all people have a right to voluntarily associate with each other. And thereby what a person rightfully has cannot be taken from them. It, that would include their life and, the, and their liberty. So anarchism is about 100% voluntarism. So there's nothing more moral than that. So first of all, it's based on morality. And whatever you think you know about anarchism, I challenge you to learn more and see where you're misinterpreting things. Next, it doesn't require others to change. Every system of government that we talk about today, every political philosophy, socialism, communism, republicanism, uh, minarchism, whatever, requires others to participate. They are non-voluntary. Even a minarchist says, well, we can still steal a little bit of money to put roads in, right? A, a, a socialist says, we need to steal lots of money so that everybody has something. A Republican says, hey, we need to balance this out. We need a little bit of theft here and a little bit of theft there. And When we steal some money and give it to a corporation, it all comes back and it's good, so it's okay. But all of these forms of political philosophy involve making your case and gaining control, and changing the system to do what you want it to do. Anarchism actually is letting go of that system. And, and, and not saying, we will fight the system by bringing it to the ground. We will bring the system to the ground by leaving it. it, it, it it's what I call <laughs> proactive apathy. If you just don't give a shit and you don't do anything, that type of apathy is great for the system because the system will eventually compartmentalize you into something to its own benefit, like putting you on welfare and living in the projects. You don't think that benefits the system? You don't understand the system, man. The system wants as many people as possible in that role without having so many that it breaks the ability of the people that believe they're fighting against that to provide enough income to provide for it. You got it? That, that's, that's how that works. But anarchism doesn't require you to change your buddy, your friend, the government. It requires you to simply make a moral decision for yourself. And that moral decision is to take what anybody else has, if they've come to it through rightful means, is wrong, 
to use force and violence against others unless it's in defense of life, liberty, or property is wrong. It's wrong. Giving you a badge doesn't make it okay. Doesn't make it okay. Somebody writing something on a piece of paper, having a bunch of people vote on it and decide that it should be enforced, doesn't make it okay. That if you want to have that in an area that you rightfully came into uh, to, to control, and anybody that wants to is free to leave with no repercussions, or coexist and just maybe not benefit from what you have all agreed to, then that's okay too. But to coerce somebody into that agreement against their will, especially before they're even born, by mortgaging their future as debt on their future work before they're even born, is immoral and wrong. It doesn't mean we're going to fix it all. It doesn't mean we're going to change it all. It doesn't mean that you're going to even see a stateless society exist in its true form in your lifetime. It's seven-generational thinking. But it is a moral choice. And I would like to challenge some of you by using things you're familiar with to, to think about how this is. Some of you are deeply Christian and believe that for a man to marry a man or a woman to marry a woman is morally wrong. And just because the state says it's okay doesn't mean that you'll agree with it. You might even accept that that's what the state does now and there's nothing that you can do about it, but it doesn't mean that you'll sanction it and say it's okay. Personally, I could, couldn't care less if two guys get married. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect you. That's just what the TV said. And I don't think God cares. I really don't. I really don't. But if you do, it's a perfect way to understand this. So if you believe that's wrong and nothing the state says about it will change your belief in that, then if you also believe that to steal is wrong, then nothing. Then as long as you put your faith or your personal morality, however you define it, above the statism, then nothing the state says or does should make you think that theft is acceptable. See how simple that is? And you can find your own moral objection. For instance, many people on the left feel that all war is wrong. Okay, all war is wrong. But the state sanctions war, and you live in a state nation-state, that is engaged in war right now. It doesn't matter that the state says it's acceptable. It doesn't even matter that nations have gotten together and written a playbook that is the international rules of war. And the nations have agreed that when there is war, it will be conducted in a certain way that we consider to be a more civilized form of murdering each other. You're not going to turn around and say, murder's okay, war is okay. You're probably going to say, unless somebody's trying to kill you, you shouldn't kill them back. For me, I believe in what's called sufficient force. If you're trying to kill me, I'm going to kill you. If you're trying to kill somebody else, I'm going to kill you. Because I'm not going to let somebody be murdered when they're the non-aggressor. But if you shove me, I'm not going to pull out my forty-five and put a canoe through your head. Okay, I'm going to resist with sufficient force, which might just be stepping out of the way giving you a shove and letting you go head first into the wall, and maybe you'll think about it next time. Right? So sufficient force of response is a common human moral and ethic. So just because your nation says it's okay doesn't mean you choose to believe that it's okay. Anarchism is the same thing. You're now willing to say there are things that all governments will always do 
that are immoral, and I will no longer participate in them beyond what I absolutely am forced by coercion into. I won't give you my time, my talent, my energy. Though that is something, no matter what, I can control. I can decide to do things for myself, my community, my friends, my family, the groups that I put together and assemble. That's what real anarchism is. And it is chock full of solutions that can, will, and do work. Look at education. Education, as I said, is being run the same way it has been since the 1860s. You now have kids running around with an iPhone. This iPhone can do more than in the entire bank of computers that NASA used to put a rocket into space and a man onto the moon. They have more power and ability in that phone. You can even use the phone with Skype to talk to a freaking astronaut orbiting the freaking Earth in a satellite. You can do what Mission Control had a hard time doing right in the 1960s. With an iPhone. And yet we still have a classroom where a teacher sits at the front, tells everybody what to do, judges their progress and their, and their, and their, their abilities the same way, uses the same type of testing. For all the talk of common corner, it's basically the same old bullshit rehashed and reformulated in a new way. But it's all the same. Our children could be learning in a multidisciplinary environment. It doesn't even mean that classrooms go away, but why are they going to classrooms? Eight hours a day, five days a week, 180 days a year. Do you know the answer? The answer is because the self-interest of the system puts a monetary value on them being in that seat. It's not the, it's not the best interest of the child that has that requirement. It's that every kid that sits in a chair is worth 100, 200, depending on the school district, dollars a day. And the second that child does not fill that seat, that money doesn't go to that school anymore. And thereby the people that run that school district have less money and thereby less power and less potential to grow. Because the goal of government and every government institution is perpetual growth, which doesn't make any natural sense whatsoever. Nothing in nature grows perpetually. There are cycles to all things. We're breaking natural cycles when it comes to all government programs, especially education. Anarchism allows for us to have a million different ways for children to learn. No compulsory captivity, because that's what school is. You don't think school is imprisonment? It's partial imprisonment. Here's how I will explain that to you. Let's say you're a grown man or woman, and I say to you, from now on, you're going to come to this building at 8 o'clock in the morning and stay here till 3.30. We'll even provide a, a mode of transportation for you to get here at no direct cost to you. It's all built into the system, but you're going to come here. And you go, I don't want to go there. That's not what I want to do. Okay, well, you have to, but I'm not coming. Well, we're going to send a bus to get you, a van to get you, a car to get you. I'm not getting on it. Okay, if you don't get on it for a couple days, we'll send some guys with guns to your house, and they will pick you up, and they will put you on it, and they will make you come here. And if you refuse to comply when you get here, eventually we will start fining you, we will take your property, we will put you into a, a, an actual prison, whatever, but you're going to do this whether you want to or not. And, and I turn around and said, and you're free, by the way. You have liberty. You have rights. You'd say, no, I don't. You've just taken a third of my day for half of the year. And then you're going to tell me, oh, when you leave, we're going to give you another four hours of work to do. And you better have it done when you come back or you'll fail. Well, if I fail, will you throw me out? No, we'll keep you here until you succeed. 
That's our school system, guys. I'm sorry. It is. I didn't invent it. I didn't make it up. And do you know why it's built that way? So that you will not question eight hours a day. So that you will show up somewhere and do a job the way you're told. So that you will accept being graded in a basic up or down, one or zero, success or failure. So that you will see logically that the only measure of success is a continuous promotion and that you will accept that there are going to be people that are smarter than you and better than you when you're all judged on the same merits that will be CEOs and upper management that you'll never attain. But you can get kind of there. You can get to kind of the cool kids club and, you know, the kind of the cool kids lunch table uh, eventually if you work hard and do what you're told and show up every day. Well, here's the problem. Here's the biggest problem. As bad as that all sounds, the big problem is the economy that that model is based on is falling apart right now. The entire concept that there's going to be enough jobs for everybody to go through that system is becoming laughable and ludicrous. So if, if we want, if we want to change things for the better, then we have to accept that that system just doesn't work anymore. So we could fix that with anarchism by giving people multitudes of choice to determine what actually does work best. What about kids that fall through the cracks? How many children fall through the cracks right now? See, it's a fallacy. For that objection to be real, we'd have to have every student coming out of school with a great education right now. We have school districts with 50% failure to graduate. 50% failure to graduate. And we keep giving them more money and funding them at higher levels as long as their body count goes up. We are subsidizing both what we consider success, which is nicely packaged failure, and direct failure. We don't have to. Conflict resolution. You know, everything today seems to end up in a court of law or somebody's going to be pr prosecuted or whatever when there's any kind of a conflict resolution. But yet eBay, eBay works with almost nobody. How many times have you heard somebody try to rip somebody off on eBay and, and got sued over it? A person that screws anybody on eBay has their reputation immediately destroyed and nobody will do business with them anymore. Hence, very few people ever get screwed over on eBay. Now, there's miscommunications and misunderstandings, so the mediation takes place in the person being able to post a pissed-off review and the seller being able to respond to that. I gave this guy a refund. I don't know what he's talking about. Look at all my other positive reviews. This guy's a nut job. He didn't understand what he was buying. Here was my original advertisement. I didn't say this was a genuine you know, Morgan Silver dollar from 1860. I said it was a reproduction. It's right here. He bought a reproduction. He got a reproduction at a fair price. Whatever. The mediation takes place in public view through voluntary association, and it works perfectly. That's just one example of conflict resolution. If there wasn't a family court system to handle child custody, we'd have parents that were reasonable with each other about child custody. But we've created a system where one side can, quote, win, which means the child loses. There's nothing natural about that. There's nothing beneficial there. But our system can't work anyway because we've actually financially incentivized that behavior. We haven't financially incentivized a cure for cancer. We've financially incentivized the treatment of cancer. We haven't financially incentivized conflict resolution. We financially incentivize conflict mediation indefinitely. So that's what we get. Everything we subsidize, we tend to get more of. Okay, we, we would have higher individual productivity. if Not if the United States was anarchistic, but if we just chose to do it without asking permission anymore. A group of anarchists 
or people that think like anarchists to get together and decide we're going to do this project, we'll get it done far quicker than any governmental organization or any corporatocracy will. You think the free market does such great innovative things. If you believe that, you've never worked above middle management in a corporation and see how many things are suppressed by the corporations themselves. When I worked for Fluke Networks, we had a piece of test equipment that we had come up with that we killed because we realized we could make it for next to nothing. People wouldn't pay that much money for it because it was too, it was too obviously simple. But it would do 90% of what our customers needed to do. It would probably last damn near forever. And when we looked at it, we said, oh, it'll do what's called cannibalize our existing sales. In other words, our overpriced products, they did a little bit more that they didn't really need, that they were willing to pay for because of our marketing and sales, would lose value in the marketplace by us releasing what, in all ways you could measure it, was a truly superior product. So we didn't do it. That's just one example. Now, is that in the best interest of the customer? Or is that in the best interest of the company manufacturing the equipment? Is that free market? Oh, by the way, whenever a competitor would try to release a product like that, the parent corporation, Danaher, just buys them. This is one little, that's such a tiny piece of the world. Danaher is a multi-billion dollar corporation, but compared to ExxonMobil, there's no free market in that system. True free markets are when you and I can do business together however we choose, for anything we want to do business for, in any way that we want to, as long as we both are voluntarily agreeing to engage with each other and we're not harming anybody else in our activity. True free markets don't exist in the world, and they almost never have. Though for those of you that are going to tell me anarchy has never been tried, it's never worked, I'll have a link in the show notes to you today for, for five places that anarchy not only was tried but worked, and worked well. So you can read about that and learn and, and overcome that objection for yourself instead of having me do it in audio. Um, I think we can solve access to food, water, and other basic needs in, a, in a, a true free system far more rapidly than we can in a centralized system. In the end, decentralization is the solution to most of our problems. We have a water shortage in this country. No, we don't. You know what? Do the calculations of a location that receives 10 inches of rainfall on one acre a year, how much water falls on that acre. And then see, how much water does a household need for a year? Especially with good technology, advanced technology, not forced mandated government toilets, but true things that would actually reuse water, like a system where you turn your water on, you wash your hands with it, it goes to your toilet. Then your toilet flushes it into a system that grows... Uh, ornamental plants, which clean it enough to go into a system that grows food. And then and only then does the water get released back into the ground, only to return to the water cycle. And you realize there's no shortage of water, but you can't centralize that. Therefore, you can't tax that. Therefore, you can't charge people massive amounts of money to build infrastructure in the form of pipes under the ground that go everywhere to distribute the water, which means you can't meter it, which means you can't call it a public utility, which means you can't use it to grow government. So we can't have that. So we come up with all kinds of regulations in the name of safety, though we can't actually show anything unsafe about the places where these systems have been implemented. And all the people that implemented them, by the way, were acting, even if they don't say they're anarchists, even if they say they're social justice Democrats, they were acting as anarchists when they did it. In, in Arizona, there is a guy that started cutting curbs. I'll, I'll link to Jeff Lawton's video on this today. 
So he just went out with a concrete saw, and the city's got a curb going by. He didn't go down to the, the city and say, hey, guys, look, I got this way. We can make better use of all this water running down our streets. We'll cut a hole in the curb. We'll create a depression. We'll plant trees and stuff into that. And when it rains, the little bit of rain we do get, it'll go into this depression. This will grow great big trees very, very water efficiently. The trees will create shade, which will make the water use more efficient. And we can build this whole economy based on local production, medicinals and herbals and all these other things and food value from all these trees. And the only thing we have to do is, you know, every house cut out this little piece of concrete And we only have to do it to the people that want it done. Because you know what they would have said? No. So he just did it. And they transformed entire streets. And now the city is telling people when you're building new developments, you have to, they're mandating this. So even when innovation comes up, because how do we know that's the best we can do? How about we have the city say, This is one way you could do this. You might want to consider this. Because that might actually make the, the, the developer go, oh, that's interesting. Let me think about how I could actually add something more to that. Let me think about how I could enhance that, how I could start. There might be an even better, as simple as that is, there might be a simple modification that makes it even better. But as soon as the city mandates it, we stop the innovation. Because we can centralize mandates, but we can't centralize freedom. Freedom, by its very nature, is decentralized. You don't live in a free state if you live in a state that does business through centralization. And folks, every single thing you depend on, need, want, and desire is centralized. Entertainment and media is centralized. Your food is centralized. Your water is centralized. Your school and education systems are centralized. Your medicine systems are centralized. And everything's being moved toward greater and greater centralization, therefore further and further from freedom. You have to step outside of it and say, I will decentralize my own shit. It's not the easy choice at first, but it's more effective long term. So what do we have to do in order to adapt? Because all these solutions eventually are going to come. And as they come, the system will fall apart in shards and pieces. And there'll be a lot of pain. And a lot of desire and fighting by the people that benefit from the current system or more accurately believe that they benefit from the, from the current system to hold it together. And they will act in violence. And they will be most violent toward the people who are nonviolent, to the voluntarist who says, it's okay. It's okay that this falls apart. Let me show you how to fix it. Let me show you how to do something better. Let me show you how to take control for yourself. That will be violently resisted because the best way to make sure that a person doesn't understand something is to ensure that their livelihood depends on them not understanding it. I don't remember who said that, but it's very, very true. If I could make you understand something, but once you understood it and put it into practice, you would lose your job, you're not very likely to be open to the idea, even if it's true. Even if eventually it would make your life better because you don't want to endure the pain in the interim. That's why so many people are fat and out of shape and overweight. They don't want to diet and exercise, even though they know the results will be better because they want gratification now. And they also believe they can't do it. And when it comes to your income, you really believe I couldn't subsist without this. But you just might find that you have greater freedom. You start Your nightmares start being having a job again in a conventional sense. So what we have to do to adapt to this and to make our own solutions is, number one, we have to refuse to give energy 
to an archaic system that's dying. We, we have to refuse political debates about how to fix anything in the system. When, when someone says, it's Donald Trump to the rescue, or it's Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or whatever, it's the same old shit. Right? It's the system that caused the problem being purported as the solution to the problem. I personally feel that if you are part of the people that caused the problem, you should get no say at all in how to fix it. If you burn my house down, you don't tell me how to build it. You don't tell me how to rebuild it. If you steal my money, you don't tell me where to go get new money. You either give me my money back and go away, or you, you get locked up as a criminal. Or you get shot for stealing it in the first place. Or at least you go away and never come back. You don't tell me how to earn my money back after you steal it from me. If you damage my child through a corrupt education system, you don't get to turn around and tell me how to make the education system better. You're the one that effed it up. You don't get to tell me how to fix it. So I'm not going to go in and I'm not going to debate you inside a broken system. I'm not going to try to fix an Etzel. I'm not going to try to make a 1950 black and white television show me a high-resolution video. I'm going to go get new technology. And I'm not going to lend my energy to you. I won't be drug into your debates. I'm not going to vote in your elections. I'm not going to send my kid to your school. I'm going to figure a way out on my own by working with others who think the way that I do. We have to develop our own individual decentralized groups. There's always a move to make this as big as possible, whether it's anarchism or liberty or patriotism or whatever, with a national organization. Bullshit. National organizations are easy to fight and destroy and make villains of, and they always succumb to the iron law of bureaucracy, which is the people in the organization go into two different camps. They bifurcate. People that want to do the mission and people that want the, the organization itself to succeed. And the bureaucrats always end up controlling the organization and the organization always outgrows its usefulness. It always becomes corrupted and bought. Small decentralized groups tell you to piss off. I don't care. We're building an earth ship here. We're building a concrete form home. We're doing whatever. Piss off. I don't want to see you. We went out in the middle of nowhere where you don't have any say over what we do. Now go away. Or we're doing it right here in your own backyard. We're not telling you about it. And when you do attack us, we're going to come up with a creative way to use your own system against you so that you'll leave us alone long enough to prove it works. We're done with your bullshit. We know that we can do better. We know that that doesn't mean we'll never make mistakes. That means that doesn't mean that any of our initiatives will never fail. That means that doesn't mean that when an initiative fails, it was wrong. It just means it was poorly executed or it wasn't time wasn't right for it yet. But that doesn't mean we're going to quit trying. It doesn't mean we're going to quit trying. And we're not waiting for others to see things our way. We're just going to do shit. That's what we all have to do. And people that say, well, Jack, it's easy for you to say you got your own business and whatever. Yeah, but I built this. You can too. And it doesn't matter. In some ways, those of you that, that work a job, six hours a day, eight hours a day, whatever it is, that have an hour you can steal at work to do a little bit here and there extra and get away with it, that then when you leave your job, you are done. You don't give a shit what happens till 8 o'clock the next morning. You are actually more free to do a lot of this stuff than a person like me that's 100% dedicated to a cause that works 12 hours a day and runs a farm. You have more ability in some ways to, to, to come up with, because all you have to do is figure out one thing that you're going to do outside the system. One. 
and find 20 people that want to do that one thing with you. And it can become monumentous. And you have to stop believing that that's not true. You have to stop believing the lies that say your vote counts when it doesn't, but your actions don't count. Unless they conform to what the state says they're supposed to. Unless they conform to what the corporatocracy says. Unless they conform to what the education system. Unless they conform to what your neighbors say. See, that's the great lie. Everything that actually gives you power, they tell you is a weakness. They tell you it doesn't work. They tell you it's not real. They tell you it's not worth it. And everything that's pointless, they tell you it's the most important thing in the world until you freaking believe it. And then you participate in it. And you get frustrated. And when this doesn't work, you try that. But it does, it's never going to work. You're not trying to put a round peg in a square hole. You're trying to put a round peg through a concrete wall without a jackhammer. And when you pick up a jackhammer, they say, no, 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 that breaks the rules. You know what I say? That's what I say. Jack that shit down. Put a hole in that wall. Use dynamite. Use a 50 cal. If you got to get a peg through a wall, you put a hole in it. You don't keep talking to the wall. You don't say we need a different wall. We don't say we need a little thinner wall, a little thicker wall, a little higher wall, a little lower wall. If the peg has to go through the wall, you put a hole in the wall. Fire up the jackhammer. Break out the dynamite. Get it done. Stop believing bullshit. The best way to control a person is to make sure they spend their time and their energy and their money and their life force on things that will never result in anything except what you want. And to convince them that everything that they would do for themselves, that they would do for others, that they would do to benefit their brother, that they would do to benefit their sister, that they would do to benefit humanity, that they would do to benefit the world is pointless. Your little garden in the backyard doesn't matter. Big Ag will always be in control. Really? Then why do you care? Why is there even an anti-gardening message from, from the people in power? Organic can never replace conventional. Really? Then why do you keep saying that? If it was true, you wouldn't fight it. We can never build housing. Low cost. Energy efficient. Really? Then why do you keep saying that? Maybe because you own a company that builds houses that are energy inefficient and make lots of money. Maybe because you build McMansions. We can't build neighborhoods that are self-sustaining. Why? Because you're profiting from a neighborhood not being self-sustaining. We can't have decentralized solutions and make sure everybody gets what they need. Why? Because you profit from centralization. So every time you make that choice, every time you make that choice, there's someone or something telling you not to. That is a voice of bullshit. I'm telling you, I'm telling you what you do for yourself and for those you care about. And because you believe it's the right thing is the most powerful action you can take. And none of it happens in the current system. But understand what we call the required interactive edges. I do this show as an anarchist, but it goes out into a nationalized system to countries all over the world using the Internet infrastructure that they built. I freely acknowledge that. I feel like they've taken plenty of my money over the years that I'm getting what I paid for. I use a microphone built by a company in China. I get it. I understand 
That's because it's an interactive edge. So, on some levels, we need to profit from the system until we have an alternative. We need to profit both in the system and outside of the system. What we really need to do is profit from the system and use the profits of the system to develop solutions that no longer require the system. You can think of this in some ways like solar energy, if solar energy were more viable than it is today. If it, all it took was $10,000 to put up a solar array that would provide you everything you need and complete creature comforts of home and a house that would be as easy to live in as anything else, you'd be crazy not to go out and make $10,000 if you had to deliver pizzas to do it and put that in, and especially if it lasted 100 years. Because you'd never worry about electricity and power and energy again. Now, it doesn't work that way, but it could. And there are many systems that do have longevity of 100 years or more. And we need to be building those. We need to be building those. And what we do is we take their energy and we use it to our own ends. We build parallel systems. So that there's a place for people to see, you can migrate over. We can evolve. The next thing is, we have to think. Above all, we have to have critical thinking. We do not think anymore. As a nation, as, as the, the first world doesn't think anymore. We are told you have a choice, A and B, and we all believe. When I say all, I mean the vast majority. Believe you have to pick one. You can't say no. Tell somebody you're going to vote for a third party. What's the first words out of their mouth? Go ahead, waste your vote. It's your fault the other side's going to win then. How do you know if I voted for A or B and you've picked A? I'd vote for A. I might vote for B. Right? Why, do you, why, why does everybody that makes that objection automatically assume, when they say I'm wasting my vote, that if I did vote, I'd vote their way? Because they've been programmed to believe that. Because by saying I would choose C... Okay, What I've told them is I'm smart enough to reject the person they're rejecting or the option they're rejecting. So if I'm smart enough to reject that, I must, I must be closer to agreement with them than the other side. They just believe that. It's a basic human narcissistic trait. Well, it's not the way it works. So we need critical thinking. When we're told somebody's bad, when we're told something's wrong, we're told something doesn't work, we have to start asking ourselves, why, is, why are they even saying this? Why are they even resisting? If, if this is such a bad idea, if it's so doomed to fail, why is there any resistance to it? And generally in the beginning, there is no resistance. First they ignore you. Then they ridicule you. Then they react with violent opposition. And then what you do is accept it as general knowledge. When it's proven to work. When it withstands ign being ignored, being ridiculed, and being violently attacked, Then and only then does the average person say, oh, it's true. Gee, that holds back innovation, doesn't it? We would think, we would stop knee-jerk reactions to, oh, that can't work. Oh, that's impossible. Oh, there's no way that can happen. Or, this must be this way. There's no better way to do it. If you started thinking critically, what happens is 90% of the things that everybody just assumes to be true around you start to look like complete bullshit. And you, you, you can become too stoic. You can become miserable with this. You have to have an outlet. That's where I see anarchy fitting in. Anarchy is your outlet. When you start to realize, like, there's no way to fix this shit. All these people are nuts. All these people are crazy. The people running it, 
are violent, dangerous people, and they're making your fellow man being to, to be violent and dangerous. And even when they're not directly violent and dangerous, they're sanctioning violence without even realizing that's what they're doing. When you start to realize that, you start to feel like, oh, shit, what do I do? That's a good question. Keep asking it. Maybe you'll come up with an answer. We need to be working in open source models. We don't, like this, the current system is based on patents and IPR, intellectual property rights and protections and things like that, and, and protecting things that are easily duplicated. If we're the innovators, we have a choice to say, you know what? You know what? Duplicate away. Go ahead. Duplicate away. Emulate, innovate, make it better. Go nuts. How much, how much further along do you think we'd be if we were running a model like that for the last 50 years? It doesn't work. Really? Work for WordPress. Work for Linux. Work for Unix. I mean, if, if it works there, it can work anywhere. It can work anywhere. It absolutely can work anywhere. And by being open about what we're doing, where we can, whether it's just with each other or with society as a whole, when we demonstrate something works, then other people want to do it too. People are so afraid somebody will steal my idea. Well, until you prove your idea, nobody gives a shit about your idea. Nobody gives a flying square root of F all about your idea until you prove it works. So many entrepreneurs come to me. I have this idea for a business, but I don't want to tell you about it unless you agree not not to you know use it for yourself without working with me. Piss off! I don't have time to talk to you. Get out of here. You're like I have time to go out there and start stealing other people's ideas for business. Like I I have time for that. I have a million ideas for businesses so that I don't have time to do with my own. Like I have time to steal your freaking idea. Your idea is not a business. An idea is not even valid until it's put to work and proven. It's a starting point. We need it, and the beauty is, if you share your ideas, there's a collaboration that goes on. And when somebody says, "I think it would work better this way," you go, "That won't work." Fine, great. You work on it your way. They work on it their way, and you both compete for people to come help further your idea. How do you make money with that? I don't know. Ask WordPress, because the people behind that are millionaires. And again, the economic system is going to shift anyway. What we think of as wealth today will be vastly different in 50 years. It's going to have to be because, again, you can't stop evolution. We have to become what I consider is an army of systems martial artists. And when I say systems martial artists, I don't mean like you know Russian martial arts, the stem of the system, right? What I mean is martial artists in response to the system. So a truly gifted martial artist... And you don't know how their their art works, right? You're just a brute force fighter, and you're strong. And you don't understand what they're going to do in response to you. They're a true master of that martial art. The harder you go at them, the more it's going to hurt. If you go at them soft, you'll get deflected, and it won't hurt much. If you go at them hard, it's going to hurt. I learned this with Valery Asinov. He said, attack me. I'm not attacking you. Bullshit. He goes, no, 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 do it soft. Right? So he'd do it. I, I, you know, I'd go at him like real slow like Panama, and he just pushed me aside and whatever. And like He says, now you do the same thing. You go a little faster, a little harder. And I would do it. And, you know, it still didn't hurt, 
but it was clearly more forceful, but he was making the same movements. He wasn't putting any more energy into it. And he keeps, he keeps saying more and more and more and more. And you get to a point where it starts to actually hurt, or you're, you're being thrown down with force, and the guy's moving, and they, they, you, you're convinced the movement on his end is different. And you put it on video, and you watch one, two, three, four, five, six. You move faster, he moves the same way each time. Your energy is being turned back on you. So the more energy and effort you apply in your attack, the more effective or the more forceful the response is. This is what we need to become. Martial artists in regards to the system. So we need to think in advance. So a martial artist thinks in advance. How does the human body move? How does one strike, grab, attack, punch, kick? How are weapons used? And then says, okay, regardless of how complex this looks, it's actually dramatically simple. There's lines of attack, and then my body moves a certain way, and here's how we turn that back on itself, and then we practice that. So we think before we're attacked, if attacked, how will I respond? And over time, it becomes so instinctual, you just do. And even when you're attacked in a way totally different than anything you ever trained for, and this is what I don't like about certain martial arts, show me the defense against a headlock from the rear, a chokehold, whatever, right? When it gets too much of that, It gets programmed to like, these are the ten ways that you're most like, so this is your ten things, and throw a knife hand this way, and whatever. It's, it's bullshit. It ends up not working in the real world. But when you, when you learn a fluid martial art, something like Aikido, or, or Sistema, or many other martial arts, then it doesn't matter, because the body moves in a certain way as soon as it perceives an attack, and the mind is a mental computer that works so fast It's registering what's going on before you can really think about it, and your hand's already in motion to change the attack. right? And this is subject to limitations. Some people are better at it than others. Some people, like me, are pretty good martial artists, except we're blind in our left eye. I'd never be a good competitive martial artist. wouldn't matter if I trained every day, built up my body real, real strong, was in a gym eight hours. It doesn't matter. As soon as I get in there with a top-conditioned fighter in a controlled environment in a ring that study tapes and knows this guy's blind in his left eye, I'm going to get taken out. It's just plain. So I have to be prepared for that in day-to-day -day life. right? We need to be like that with the systems. right? Where are we weakest and most vulnerable? Where are we strongest? How do we channel that energy? If I'm going to be attacked, if I think somebody's going to be attacking me anytime soon, Like, I get that feeling. I'm on a street. Someone's behind me. There's a couple guys back there. They're dressed the wrong way. Okay? They just don't seem right. They're clearly colluding. I've, I've made a turn, and they followed me in a way that I it just, and my gut's telling me, these guys are fixing to mug you, dude. And I, I look ahead, and I have the only two places I can go. One's well lit, and there's people. Yeah? And the other one is a dark alley. Going to where the people are is no guarantee that I won't be attacked. People will attack you on a, on a, on a public street. But it is less likely that I'll be attacked. So I choose that other route. Right? I choose, even though I can't stop the attack from coming, now I'm choosing to get into a position where if I have to respond, I'm in a better position. This is how we have to think about how we engage in our projects and our activities and, and, our, and our group dynamics and our thinking and our, our creation of a better society. If we're going to be attacked, let's put ourselves in an optimum position and let's have a plan. As soon as they attack us, this is what we're going to do. 
This is what we're going to do. When they say we can't do this here, here's, here's the, all the paperwork that we can file to stave them off so that we can do it. And by the way, we'll make everything portable. And when they finally win, we'll just pick it up and move it over here to a new jurisdiction. And when that jurisdiction attacks us, we will use the same paperwork and the same system uh, that they do, the same court system they do to move us out to delay their ability to move us. We'll keep everything portable and move it over here. That's just one example. right? I've seen people that say uh, you have a minimum size house you can put on a lot. Okay, They build a tiny house on wheels. Uh, townships get wise to that and say, no, it's, it's, you have to move it every 90 days uh, or it's not camping. It has to move to a different parcel of land. So since they, they have built a self-contained tiny house that's got everything that it needs as far as infrastructure, they buy another lot and they just move it back and forth. And, and, and they can even overstay uh, by a few months. And by the time the jurisdiction says you have to move, they, we, I don't know what you're talking about. We're not there anymore. Where are you now? Good luck finding out. See, this is systemic martial arts. This is understanding this because the system operates by rules. And the way you win a game is to understand the rules better than your opponent, especially if you can understand that the rules aren't real. That there are ways to break and bend the rules without actually cheating anybody or hurting anybody or causing anybody harm. If you cheat in chess by when your opponent's not looking, removing a pawn, and he's too stupid to know you did it, that's true cheating. You've actually committed an infraction because you agreed to the game, right? But if you don't want to play chess and somebody makes you play chess, if you can end the game even by losing technically, but you never wanted to be there in the first place, well, then you open up with a move to let your opponent win as fast as possible. How about this? Just to get your mind thinking about how you can outthink people. Let's say that I told you this. I will make you a deal. I'm not even a good chess player. I barely remember how to play the game. But you can find the 10 best chess players you can get your hands on. Bring them all to a room. I will play them all simultaneously. So I'll have 10 games going on at once. I'll bet you I can beat at least half of them. Would you take my bet? You should know the old analogy, never take a man's bet. If the man comes up with the bet himself, he knows how to do it. He knows how to win. So how could I do that? How could I beat five of ten chess masters, playing them all simultaneously, when they've spent their whole life learning this game better than me? Well, it's very simple. I break them up in my mind into pairs. There's Bob there and Tom there. Bob and Tom are now going to play each other chess. So Bob opens, right? And I just make sure that whoever I get to open against, I put against the guy that gets to open. So Bob opens by moving his, you know, his pawn uh, uh, up uh, two spaces. So I walk over to Tom and I move my pawn up two spaces. Tom responds with a movement of a knight over here. I just walk over to Bob and put my knight over there. See that? See how that works? Bob and Tom are now playing against each other. All right. All I'm doing is remotely playing the game. And in the end, I'll win five of those games. At best, at best, I might draw. But I'll still win at least half of the games that had a victory. If I have four wins, four losses, and, a, and two draws, I still won half of the victories. And I exhorted no energy. I needed no knowledge of the system. 
I let the people in the system play against each other. And I won my bet with you, and I get my money. We have to start thinking about manipulating the system that way. Instead of being attacked by a city, why can't we get the city and the county fighting each other while we just screw off and do what we want? There's ways to do that too. How? I don't know yet. That's the point. We have to start considering the alternative right now. That's what we really have to do. When, when, when people tell me oh, anarchy can't work, well, what's the alternative? Perpetuation of the existing system. One side or the other winning. Does anybody really want that? Is there anybody out there that, that, that really believes in the political system in this country enough that would say, you know what, I would be completely comfortable if we had 100 Republican senators, all Republican House of Representative members, and a Republican president and a stacked Supreme Court that all believed in Republican conservative values. I think even most people that vote Republican would start to think about that and go, wait a minute. There's, 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 a, there's an advantage to having the other side keep my side from going too far. I agree with most of what they say, but I wouldn't want them to have their way 100%. How about the other side? How many of you Democrats would be okay with 100 Democratic senators, a complete House of Democrats, a Democratic president? And if you say yes to either of those, you probably don't because you wouldn't have listened this long. If you really would say yes to either one of those, you probably wouldn't have listened to this show this long. Because there's something wrong in your mind and your understanding of the current system, if you would say you'd be okay with either of those. So the alternative is one side or the other wins, or the continuous left-right march of tyranny continues. The alternative is our schools become better at what they're doing, which is making our children compliant. All the alternatives are horrible. The only beneficial alternative is for you to say, from this point forward, I decide the questions that I will ask. I determine the answers for myself. I determine the future of my family, my community, for myself. I choose what to participate in and what not to participate in. I will not be coerced any more than I absolutely have to, and I will be constantly looking for opportunity to increase and expand my freedom of choice, my freedom of thought, my freedom of activity, my freedom of commerce, my freedom to work with other people. Those are your two choices. There's no C. There's no partial engagement with this system on a meaningful level that lends credibility to the system that you think you're going to make the system better with. It doesn't just drain your energy. You know how Stephen Harris tells you, when you build a battery bank, if you're going to put in four batteries, you put in four brand new batteries. You don't get one old battery that still tests well and put three new batteries with that. You'd actually be better off just not putting that older battery in there and doing a three-battery bank and taking that individual low-drain battery, that one that's been around a while, and making its own battery bank by itself. You don't put it in there. Well, why? Because eventually the lifespan of the older battery will wear out before the other three do, and it will drain them. It will take three batteries that would be perfectly good for another two years, four years, five years, and shorten their life, and shorten their ability by robbing their energy. Every time, every time you get sucked into that system, it's like adding a dead battery cell to yourself. All that energy that gets drained in there, all of the thoughts that are put in a place where they're never going to change anything. It's sad. 
You know, one thing Ron Paul said, it was one of the most truthful things that he ever said. When he left Congress and he gave his farewell speech, he basically said, you know what? What I actually accomplished here was nothing. I accomplished nothing. I resisted plenty of stuff that passed anyway. I never once actually stopped something that I thought was wrong from passing, voted no on it, but I never actually stopped it. One of the most honest moments any politician's ever had. I've never actually gotten anything done here. Grilled the Fed chairman, and that's what he said. He said, what I was actually able to do is spread ideas. But inside the system, I didn't do shit. Well, if Ron Paul, who was elected to Congress for over 20 years, couldn't do shit in the system, what do you think you can do? What do you think you can do in that system? Are you going to get elected to Congress for 20 years? Go ahead if that's what you want to do. You want to ruin your life. So how do you think you're going to affect the system with your one vote that doesn't count? And if it does, they probably change it if they don't like the way it works out with voter fraud. Because, yeah, that happens on both sides, guys. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. You're, the answer is you're not. So consider the alternative. The alternative is you decide today to do what's right for yourself, to do what's best for yourself. And, and that sounds very dangerous to people, self-centered, egotistical. You want what's best for yourself. Why wouldn't you want what's best for yourself? If you don't want what's best for yourself, who the hell does? Do you want what's best for your children? When you look at your, your kids, whether they're young kids or like mine, you know, 20-somethings, when you look at your kids, do you not think, I want the very best for them? Okay, then have enough respect for yourself to feel the same way about yourself. When you look at your spouse, then you think, I want what's best for her or for him, then have enough respect for yourself to feel the same way. When you look across the street at your neighbors, assuming you like your neighbors, do you not think, I want what's best for them? Most of the people in this audience are totally different than most of America. You know what I hear from this audience when, I, when we talk about the success of somebody in business? Like, especially a small business. Like, you know, you, you talk about somebody that wrote you and said, hey, we did this and all. And the person struggling that you're talking to and hasn't ever managed to get anything done yet. They're trying so hard. They, they just feel defeated. But you know what they say about the person that had success? Wow, that's great. Wow, that's great. You know what most of America says? Must be nice. Must be nice. Who'd they know? That's why you're different. That's why you're different. Because you know that good things should be rewarded. So if you do good shit, why shouldn't you have the best for yourself? That's the big lie, folks. That's the big lie. That if you want what's best for yourself, you're selfish. If you want what's best for yourself, you're infinitely giving. You think you can be a great husband, guys? If you don't have what's best for you, do you think you can really stand up and be the man that your wife wants you to be if you don't have what's best for you in your life? If you don't feel joy and passion every day, how can you share joy and passion with somebody? The system robs it from you. Turn your back on a system that turned its back on you a long time ago. Practice. Practice. Proactive apathy, practical 
anarchism. Don't worry about what anybody else will do with anarchism. Worry about what you will do with it. Don't worry about who says something can't be done. Worry about how you can figure out how to prove them wrong. And when you're attacked, deflect the energy and choose your point of attack. Choose the place you're least likely to be attacked and where if you are attacked, you'll have the most ability to respond with as little effort as possible. This is the way forward. Society, economics, sociology, humanity is going through a period of rapid evolution right now. Technological innovation, it's not going to stop. It's not going to go away. We can either be part of it or we can try to hold fast to the old feudal order. Please remember your history lessons and remember what happens to all the people that try to hold on to a system once it falls apart. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
you look at it from up here, you get an appreciation of our world is a beautiful place and we do need to take care of it.